RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 4, Episode 15, Daily Production Reports, Encounter at Farpoint, 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Oh, welcome back to The Trek Files, all you Star Trek fans, all you, yes, canonistas, I say that with love. <laughs> hey, you. I hope we have some media historians listening to us and production students. We're really doing a, a wonderful kind of class in how it's done or how it was done and how is it different today. Because I know all you Trekophiles, spelled with an F, are going to join me in welcoming back our awesome guest and, as you can see, some of the really fun documents we've got for you this week. So, yes, take a look at our Facebook page, The Trek Files. We've got three or four there from a, a very keen point in uh, Star Trek history and in a format that you may not be used to seeing until now. So check that out and uh, give a listen here, and I'll be right back with our special guest. Company moved from stage 9 to stage 6 at 7.08 p.m. The following personnel received breakfast. Levens, Signorelli, Kepler, Westmore. Company forced to abort part of scene and progress due to a hum generated by the power source of the fish tank in the main bridge ready room set. Company did not request that Van Ness and Gower gates be kept open. Grip electric craft service out at 10 p.m. All right, now, admit it, Trekophiles, how many of you have seen a real, not a call sheet, which is the hope? <laughs> it's the plan. How many of you have seen the daily production reports that record what actually happened? And you know what? Not only what actually happened, but in excruciating detail for about 47 different people and departments. Um, there is so much. I love call sheets because they're like a Bible of the show, but... Um, Maybe the call sheet's the Old Testament and the daily report is the New Testament. Uh, there is so much detail here. And here's a pivotal point. The early days of, you know, the first comeback show, Next Generation, Counter at Farpoint. There's so much fun to go through. And you know what? It takes a keen eye to really pull out the story between the lines. Who better to do that with than our, than our good friend now and great guest, Mike Demerit, the best, well... The best assistant director from Star Trek on our show today. <laughs> a lot of good assistant directors have been on Star Trek over the years, Mike. I didn't want to slight anybody. No, including my mentor, Jerry Flack. Yes. Who, who I think may have been, you know, is, is contentious to be the best ever in the industry. He's, he's certainly deserving of such a consideration. The late, great Jerry Fleck. And uh, not every television assistant director got snapped up to go uh, work on two features. That's true. Yeah, with John, yeah. Jonathan. But he had features before he came to Star Trek. I mean, Edward Scissorhands. And, uh, he, I, he was, it wasn't that. It wasn't what you worked on. It's how he ran a set. He was in charge uh, and respected. And to get both of those is a difficult task when you have no actual authority. The only authority you have is lent to you. So the first AD gets the authority on television from the producers and then the feature film from the director. But they have no true authority. 
has Unlike, to be say, the director of photography who has true authority. Yeah. They have the power of God. <laughs> so they just say, this doesn't look good and everything stops. You know, there's nothing an AD can say. You have to want to do what they they are asking. And Jerry was that mold. And you know what? You've worked a few years. I think you've you've earned a little of that yourself. But you've certainly earned the right to sit down and have some fun with us on these documents this yeah. week. So what strikes so look what we've what we've given everybody this week is the first day. In fact I was in an online conversation with somebody who was telling me that there are some sources out there, so maybe we can help correct the record a few places that have the start day of next generation erroneously. But I knew all along day one was a Friday yeah. after three days of rehearsal. Shooting on location. The only location in the pilot was at Ferndale for the holodeck quote unquote scene, right? With uh, with Wesley and Data and and uh, Riker, um, which is what we see here first day, and then we go to the stage, not day two because I skipped that because it was the uh, the guest sets they shot on the the Farpoint Mall, the Bandy Mall, to do those first because they had to be turned around and converted into the Q courtroom. What I jumped to was some of the first days on the ship sets, the standing sets, especially they didn't shoot on the bridge until supposedly. Uh, the one day that was bumped because they ran long. Now that's what I got out of it. Yeah. You on day six, and it wasn't until day seven of their shoot they were actually on the bridge for the first time. But I also know, just as a layman, that shooting on a, a pilot, you're you're figuring everything out. Yeah. You're, you're you know you're going to be a little overtime on some things because you're figuring, out. and especially Star Trek is so complex and these crazy sets and less less Landos who would probably know why. Mm-hmm. They did it in the order they did. My my instinctual response is bridge wasn't ready, you know. But maybe not. Maybe there was another mechanic of having to get a set off of a stage so they could build a new set when they were on the bridge at the same time. Yeah. I don't know. They were shooting in well, you know. They were shooting in corridors, the holodeck. Yeah. I mean, they were shooting on the stage nine, which was left over from the movie era. So maybe those were ready, ready sets. And the and the bridge was built from scratch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that would explain a lot. The first year, did you know the first year the bridge was over on stage six because the Colbys had stage eight, and when the Colbys was canceled, they brought the bridge moved it over over to eight, yeah. where it stayed, you know. Yeah, all the, the way through Voyager. All the way through, yeah. And yeah. then it was a stage through Enterprise, but not the bridge. Yeah. But so you're looking at these production reports, and there's, again, there's like so many little niches and crevices here of information. But what, what strikes you as you look at... Um, because well, what got, the reason I picked those dates also is because you think on a pilot it's going to happen. I see if people check out right below the headers at the right-hand side, past the director's name, you see status. And by day six, they were two and a half hours, one and three-eighths pages behind. Right. Yeah, look, the one thing that hits me right away is that it's handwritten. <laughs> uh, it takes me back because we, we handwrit all the way through. Voyager, and then it wasn't until Enterprise that we actually stopped. But we were probably the last company in town that wasn't computerizing these things, um, which is oh. sort of ironic. You I was going to say, no. We're, we're no. Star Trek, and uh, there were two things I had a hard time getting them to do. Uh, switch to computer-generated call sheets and production reports, because, ah, uh, computers, really? And the other thing was uh, to get away from Polaroid film and use digital cameras because the colors were truer. And I got a lot of resistance on that. Oh, those digital cameras, oh, it would be such a pain. I said, but it's so much better. (laughs) And eventually those two things happened. And as soon as they were implemented, uh, they saw that it was, in fact, better. Uh, Polaroids are fun. 
but their color accuracy is wrong. And the number of times, particularly as a second AD, oh, that you're we talking about for like uh, Polaroid films, yeah, yeah, yeah. for for uh, like makeup, makeup and costume approval. and props and yeah. all of that. Yeah, you put an alien through his Thank long you. makeup and take a picture, send it upstairs, and then they go like, "These colors look terrible. That's not what they really look like." And then they'd make you send the person up. When the digital age comes along, it was true. And the approvals happen faster. I have to thank you because as an archivist and someone that did, you know, prop and costume and, and you know, for the fact files and all the nonfiction thing we did, those Polaroids are so sad. <laughs> it was even to the point where you could, t- it was finally, you could at least scan them and then like Photoshop correct, right? right. And try to pull things out. But, oh, when everything went digital. Plus, the coming of the digital uh, 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 approval pictures. Right. It meant that suddenly there were cameras floating around sets, and suddenly, correct me if I'm wrong, but that got a little freer, right? Um, yeah, because it, uh, they didn't know how to police it. Right. Right. So suddenly, of all things, yeah, the, the behind we have the more behind-the-scenes pictures of Enterprise yeah. than we do of any other series because... Because of digital cameras. Right. Yeah, it, was, it was cheap, easy, and, and, it were, and you could put them in your pocket and, and no one would know. And you weren't shot if you happened to pull one out. Right? No, it was common. It was on your phone even, eventually. The first thing when you think about any, any production form from any era is that this is the legal document. This is the thing if there was a courtroom issue, this oh, is what comes in. Okay. The call sheet is, is the myth. The call <laughs> sheet is uh, this is our objective. The production report is this is what actually happened. Right. And that's why you see a lot of um, you hear a lot of stories based on call sheets, and then you see the production part go. Wait a minute, they canceled that whole day, and they did this, and then why are they saying this happened then? And you realize that oh, someone fell in love with the plan and has decided that's what happened, but that isn't what happened. If you want to know what happened, you got to go to the production reports. If you really want real details, you got to look at the slates on the film because mm-hmm. they often record the time that the shots actually occurred as well, which can be quite eye opening. So Especially now that you have digital slates. Yeah. So when I look at this day six one, and we're starting to see something. The first thing I did is flip in the back and say one camera or two, and it's one, right? So they have one camera working, and they're doing 17 setups. They do about three minutes, 19 seconds, and that's all in that now little script section. Now define setup real close. I um, think people get it. But. The concept of a setup is if you have framed a shot and you have done, say, 20 takes, and then you move and you reframe to a new shot, that's a new setup. Right. So uh, you'll have whether, whether you have just turned the camera a few degrees or whether or you're moved on to a whole new set turned around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It had relight it's everything. A whole, it's the whole spectrum of what a setup could. Most script supervisors uh, determine any lens change to be conceptually a setup, which is how I was raised and what I believe. There are some people in the modern era who think because of how digital is done that reframing on lens isn't a setup because you didn't change the lights. But it really it is, because in editing, it's certainly viewed that way. It's a different shot than the shot they had before. Therefore, it is a new setup. Right. But either way, the, the idea is how many setups can you accomplish in a day? And they seem to be going for 12-hour days. Um, you and I talked about this before, that uh, my feeling looking at, at the Friday call sheet, Friday, June 5th, the sixth day, is that uh, there was a consciousness that they were falling behind, but they wanted this uh, week to end well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they have a 12-hour day here. They were in at 9 a.m., they had an hour for a lunch, and they're out at 9.49 p.m., lunch isn't work time, so they had a 12-hour day. That's probably what they budgeted for. They could have, on a Friday night, pushed it another two hours and gotten on schedule. So I think there had to have been a very conscious decision. We're not going to do that. We're Let's gonna get a weekend we under it. these guys' belts. Yeah. Let's give them some rest. Let's start the week fresh. We're okay we're going to go behind. I, I, I can't believe 
I believe they had an option to do to not do that if they wanted to. And look who's those names signed off the bottom, led by the UP the unit production manager, yep. David Livingston, in his first role down there. Yep, before he was a line producer, line producer and yep. uh, director, late night uh, Livingston. I'm not sure who B Kalash is. That's the strange name for me. I've worked with Les Lando. I've worked with Babu Samarinian. I've worked with Adele Simmons. I don't know who Bob is. I don't know who this okay. B is. Um, B Kalash. We could we can research that. But now it's here's interesting a, to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so people, we've got both the specific story of the Farpoint early days here, and also mm-hmm. just like the information on here. I just dawned on me. I'm so used to seeing picture negatives. We're actually in the in the day they were tracking film, film cost, right? Film lab costs. We've actually got the feet of film used, what was good, what was bad. Is is that all just a moot point now? Is that all like... Well, now you count how many cards. So how many digital cards. So so the numbers are still accounted for. Okay. Um, When you're in low budget... Um, they'll have what's called the, either a DIT transfer or a, or a PDA transfer. So you'll have a hard drive, like a you know three tetrabyte hard drive and another one. Uh-huh. And every time a card comes off a camera, they copy it. So they have the entire document. When you're in low budget, they take that card, they wipe it out, and they put it back to work so that you're just rotating through the same three or four cards. When you're in high budget, they don't. They hang on to the cards like you would have a can of film. They hang on to it till the production is done. Then they recycle the cards. So, yeah, that's a big difference. And if you want to really look up costs, if you want to know why the budgets are so high on these, uh, just fe- go go look how much it costs to sync sound and to process film. So you're talking about here that they're saying the good film, that's the stuff we actually intend to, to uh, uh, make a work print out of. Look how many feet they're talking about. We're, we're barely, we're six days into this 30,000 feet of film that they want to actually look at. So if you're paying, you know, 11 cents a foot for sound sync, <laughs> you bought a car, up. right? You know? <laughs> so digital's, digital's big plus was not that it was um, superior to film because it's not in terms of resolution. 35 millimeters still better than 8K or 12K even. Still better. It's the equivalent of, of about 30K, somewhere in there. Hmm. But... The cost—it's undeniable. No lab, no chemicals, no foot, no plastic, or no whatever the. Yeah. And if you're doing something like, say, oh, science fiction, <laughs> digital tracking. See, in film, everything had to be hand aligned, and and you would use rotoscope if something moved, and uh, you had to crossfade if it didn't. Now you just you know, I, I, here's the simplest way to explain this. When I started on Star Trek, that's Star Trek Voyager pilot. The cost of having a single phaser fire, I point the phaser at you and a beam of light comes out, $2,500. By the time we reach Enterprise, 50 bucks. Now you do it on your phone. You mean it's not mm-hmm. because they resorted to weaponry much more often in the 22nd century than in the 24th? <laughs> okay. I, I just That's why there's way more, more shots in Enterprise of people <laughs> shooting at each other than there is in... I thought it's just they were just more shoot-happy in, <laughs> in the olden days. Well, if we get into the lexicon of that, there are a lot of things that have never been explained to me in the Star Trek lore. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there are some questions I'd love That's to ask. That's my new series, yeah. uh, Mike. Because well, uh, Tuvok explained. in one episode shot everybody on the bridge by setting his phaser to wide beam. So I'm like, okay, so when we're doing these fights in the corridor, 
why don't you just set it to wide beam? I've said that for decades. <laughs> yeah. I've said that for decades. Because it drains your power pack. Well, if you only had to kill, you only had yeah, one you, shot. It would be over. It, yeah, it'd be over. So I, uh, you know, there's, there's a huge amnesia about wide setting on in the original series, mm-hmm. right? We we encounter people who live at a very fast time, and we create a chemical that Spock, in takes and he repairs a ship in, in seconds because he's moving at a very different time. So like, wouldn't you have repair crews with this chemical on every ship during battle? <laughs> And just repair it as soon as it breaks, before the air can get out. Now, there's a whole bunch of physics things as why this is impossible. I don't want to get into the physics of it. The Scalosians were third season. We never saw Starfleet's big experiment with Scalosian <laughs> water repair crews. I had a better explanation given to me at a convention, which is never, it's not in the lore. I mean, this, this, this is just someone justifying. It only works in the Scalosian sun. If you're if you're away from there the explosion sun, so you you can't do it anywhere else. This I've is heard just that. only here. So yeah. I thought well, that's that's a clever way the writer should have thought of and put in the script. Thus, we got that <laughs> wonderful novel under the explosion sun. <laughs> but as far as far points wrapping, yeah. What's it? What is uh, I We should say they got behind day six, behind, day seven, yeah. and by day eight they were back, back on, on schedule. schedule. Yeah. If you look at the day eight, um, look at the number of setups. Right, we know that we've tracked through this a little bit. Sixteen, seventeen, eighteen—that's their normal when they only have one camera. Mm-hmm. They only had one camera on day eight. How many did they do? Thirty-two. 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 So, do you think somebody was saying, <laughs> "Cracking catching up today, guys"? Yeah. Catching up today. Yeah. Here's our day. Had to be. And they were learning lessons. Part of that's the learning curve, right, of shooting on new sets and. and oh sure. When I talked to Mary Howard interact. about the difference of, of next generation. To when I came on board, the, there were those first two Mary seasons. Mary legendary uh, producer, basically yes. number two to Rick Berman on the show. Worked her way up, yeah. Yeah, from you know, started in AD and uh, worked her way up. Um, she explained to me the the she would tell me how they did things, and I would and I would and my initial response was like, "That's crazy! It takes so much time." Well, yeah, but they didn't know that. <laughs> now we do. Mm-hmm. So the idea of writing your show short is a became a modern thing. So. It's better to have a second unit is not a thought that would have existed in the early Next Generation or the original series. The idea that, what, second unit, what, that means you failed. You have to shoot something again or add. Then it became obvious that you actually it's smarter to have your days balanced and then cut it together. And if you're a minute and a half short, write a minute and a half scene, have a second unit and fill it in. Then it is to shoot eight minutes you're never going to see. So they realized cost-wise it was actually cheaper to have second units that filled in those blanks than it was mm-hmm. to have... If needed. Yeah, to eight minutes of film that you're never going to use. To have shot for hours and hours and thousands thousands of setups a year that you never see. Well, I just remember, I knew about call sheets and production reports from reading, again, The Making of Star Trek, the classic book. But when I first was working on the Next Gen Companion, I said, bring me the call sheets, bring me the production reports. Especially the call sheets, at least. Yeah, they're more and fun. people were like, well, what? what? What do you care? It's like, it's the Bible of the show. Yeah. It's the recording. It's the, of the plan. Show. I didn't think about the legal end of it, if I'd get hauled into court or something. But Well, modern call sheets, by the way, just looking at the back of this, um, I, I wish these days were still here. This is so much simpler. 
Uh, second ADs could be on set a lot more when it was just how many of what people did you have and the accountants dealt with accounting. But the modern approach is you list everybody's name, you put their in time, their out time, their meal penalties, and you pass all of that calculation burden over to the second AD who has about four or five hours a day where they are the on-set accountant keeping track of all wow. of this stuff. And that was, in effect, a way to, to save money. So modern production reports are more detailed, way more detailed wow. than this. Wow. They reflect those opening credits with 47 names in the opening <laughs> credits. Yeah. Mike, this is so great. Thanks for helping us decipher a production report and look for the unknown, uh, look for the little uh, stories between the lines. Yeah. And take a look down at the bottom at the extras. Please look at that. Realize that uh, the extras, it looks like their base rate of pay for just a, a, a normal extra was 72 bucks for a day, for you know an eight-hour day. So, In 1987. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's nothing extra to say here. We, I mean, we, we, could, we could make a whole seminar out of this, but uh, uh, thanks for helping us decipher the production. No Mike. problem. Yeah, yeah. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All of our documents and your chance to comment are right there on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Hey, for more great podcasts, check out podcasts.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47, that's me, at larrynemacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.